Well, if you will, open me in your Bibles to Psalm 29. Psalm 29 will be the psalm we're in this morning. We will begin by reading the text together. You will notice here, as the previous Psalms, this is a Psalm of David. Beginning in in verse 1, beginning in verse 1, we read David writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in His temple all cry, Glory! The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as King forever. May the Lord give strength to His people. May the Lord bless His people with peace. Let's go to the Lord again. Father, You are most worthy of all glory and honor. You are worthy to be praised on earth from the lips of men. And You are worthy to be praised in heaven by the saints above and the festal gathering of angels which surround Your throne. Because You are a sovereign God. By You and through You all things have been made. And You are a just God. You are a God who cannot look upon iniquity. You have no pleasure in sin and evil. And therefore, in Your sovereignty and in Your justice, You will bring an end to all evil. And most especially when that day comes, all creatures in heaven and on earth will sing Your praise forever and ever. I pray, Lord, that all of us who are here this day would be joined to our great King and would be a part of that great choir which will sing Your praises. I pray that as we consider Your Word this morning, which calls all people to worship You, that our very own hearts would have this great desire to love You, to glorify You, and to worship You forevermore. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we come to a psalm that is uh, quite simple, and yet in its simplicity, it is also quite rich. Its simplicity is seen in that it has a basic theme that runs throughout the psalm. One basic theme. It is a call to worship. And its richness is seen in the allusions that it makes to the flood account, to its subtle polemic 
against false gods and its purpose in declaring the sovereignty of God over all powers. Now, we're not told what the exact occasion was for the psalm, why it was originally written, when it was written, but we can infer based on the content of the psalm and its similarity to the psalm that is quoted in 1 Chronicles 16 in particular, that it was likely written as a thanksgiving in response to some victory the Lord had given to David. So for example, in 1 Chronicles 16, David in that chapter is celebrating the Ark of the Covenant being brought back to Jerusalem and being placed in the tabernacle after the Philistines had just been defeated. And he appointed some of the Levites to lead in singing a song of thanksgiving. And in the middle of the song, in verses 26 and 27 of that chapter, the people sing that all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and joy are in His place. They are mocking in song the false nature of the gods of all of the other peoples. And they're doing so because the gods have been proven to be false gods by virtue of the fact that Yahweh has just conquered them. So they are praising the Lord and they are rejecting the false gods of the nations. There is this singing here that is boasting over these gods. And then in the very next line of that same chapter, we read the words that are also found in Psalm 96, which says this, Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come before Him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Now these are essentially the same exact words that begins our psalm. Only instead of the families of the peoples being summoned to worship, it is here the heavenly beings or the sons of God, which we'll look at in more detail in a moment. But it is they, these heavenly creatures, who are being summoned to worship the Lord. The point is that this psalm is a victory psalm. It is a thanksgiving. It is a psalm that glories in and celebrates the power and supremacy of God over all of His enemies, both in heaven and on earth. It exalts Him as the supreme over all. Now, in our particular psalm, the psalm has two basic parts to it, which we'll look at in turn, and then we'll conclude towards the end with what some of the implications of this psalm are. But in the first part of the psalm, specifically in verses 1 and 2, we find here a call to worship. Very simply, there is a call to worship. Again, the psalm says, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord or attribute to the Lord glory and strength. It is a summons to magnify the name of God, to celebrate Him, to exalt Him, to exult in Him, to, in essence, kiss the King as Psalm 2 might say, to pay homage to the only true King. But it's important to notice here who is being addressed. 
Who is being called to worship the Lord? If you have an ESV text with you, it says, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. You can probably see that in your text, and, and really in the text of any modern translation, there is a footnote that tells you that the words for heavenly beings are literally sons of God or sons of the mighty. Now, this particular phrase, sons of God, it can refer to the people of God. As we find, for example, in Hosea chapter 1, verse 10, where in that context, the Lord is making a promise that those who are not God's people shall be called sons of the living God. But the sons of God here probably has a different meaning. Most often, this phrase and other very similar phrases in the original language refers to angels or to heavenly creatures. For example, we find it in Psalm 89, verse 6, where we read there, For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the sons of God is like the Lord? So the, the sons of God there in that psalm are those who are in the skies and who in the following verse are referred to as the council of holy ones and who are around God. And so these are heavenly, angelic creatures. These are your cherubim and your seraphim. The ones who call out before God around His throne, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Just as we find in Isaiah's vision in chapter 6. But another place where we find this phrase is in Genesis chapter 6. Which for this psalm is a very important background for understanding it properly. Genesis 6 is, of course, a chapter that describes the great wickedness that was on the earth in the days of Noah and that eventually led to the worldwide judgment of the flood. And in the beginning of that chapter, Moses says that when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. And the sons of God here refers to angels or angelic creatures. There were angels who were entering into marriages with human women. And perhaps it's the case that as soon as I say something like that, you're probably thinking, possibly, wait a second. I thought that Jesus said that angels do not marry, nor are they given in marriage, right? You would be partially correct about that. He says specifically in, um, in Matthew chapter 22, verse 30, he says, For in the resurrection, men and women neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. That phrase, in heaven, is important. The sons of God who married the daughters of men in Genesis 6 did not remain in heaven. They left it. They rebelled. This is what Jude, for example, says when he describes this very same event of Genesis 6 in his letter. He says in Jude 6 of the angels that they did not stay within their own position of authority, but they left their proper dwelling. 
And in the parallel passage in 2 Peter chapter 2, what we read from earlier in verse 4, Peter says of these very same angels of Noah's day that God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. The witness of Scripture tells us that these sons of God were angels. And without getting into all of the various implications of that, the point in Genesis 6 is to describe just how wicked things had become on the earth in the days of Noah. There was sexual immorality being committed that defied the imagination. Women were going after strange flesh of angels. And angels were abandoning their proper position of authority and going after the strange flesh of women. And this same kind of perversion in the book of Genesis is later paralleled in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah where the men of Sodom were pursuing homosexual perversion with the strange flesh of the angels who were being housed in Lot's house. Which is again something that Jude refers to when he says that Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued strange flesh. And they serve as an example of judgment by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now, we'll come back to this in a moment, but the point I want you to see here is that the sons of God is a phrase that refers to heavenly beings or angels. And in Genesis 6, it was these rebellious angels who were contributing to the increasing defilement of the world that eventually leads to the worldwide judgment of the flood. And here in Psalm 29, it is angels, the same kinds of beings who are being called to ascribe glory and honor to the Lord and to worship Him. But it's also important to see where they are told to worship Him. Verse 2 says, Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. But the word here for holiness can also refer to the sanctuary of the tabernacle. The place where God is to be worshipped. This is what we find, for example, its use in Psalm 20, verse 2, which says there, may He send you help from the sanctuary. Same word. And may He give you support from Zion. Or in Psalm 63, verse 2, which says, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. And that's probably the sense of the word here in Psalm 29. The angels are being called to worship the Lord in the splendor in the, or in the beauty of the sanctuary. Which means that they're being called to join with God's people who worship Him in the tabernacle. As God's people gather together in the tabernacle and later in the temple to exalt Him, and as David leads the way in this worship, the angels in heaven are summoned to join in with this celebration and worship. So that while God is being praised on earth through the lips of His people, He is also being praised in heaven through the lips of His angels. And thus, 
heaven and earth are joined together in the temple to worship the Lord and to give Him His glory. But then we find in the rest of the psalm the specific reason why the sons of God or the angels are being called to worship. And it has to do with the manifestation of God's power over them that was revealed especially in the days of the flood. In verse 10, you look with me there, David says, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. And the word here for flood is only used elsewhere in Scripture in Genesis 6 to Genesis 11, some 12 different times in every occasion to refer to the flood account in Noah's day. And then it has one more occurrence in the rest of the Old Testament, which is here. Which tells us that all of this language that we find throughout this particular psalm about the Lord's voice being over the waters is intended to make us think about the flood account and the things that happen during that time. Verse 3 says, The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. And of course, when the flood came, it wasn't just a drizzle. Right? There wasn't a sprinkling that came upon the world and then flooded it. This is rather a massive storm. You have an outpouring of rain. The heavens being opened up. Thunder and lightning. It is the worst storm you could ever imagine. And it was the Lord's voice that was doing the thundering. Verse 5 also says that the Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon, referring, in essence, to the floodwaters that are rushing through the land of Lebanon and breaking down all of their massive trees and uprooting them. In verse 7, it is the voice of the Lord that flashes forth flames of fire, referring to the flashes of lightning that you would see within a storm. In verse 8, the wilderness is shaken by the floodwaters. And in verse 9, it says that the, the deer probably, probably not gives birth, but the deer has the pains of childbirth. The deer, in other words, is, is writhing in anguish while the forests are being stripped bare. And all of this judgment, all of this devastation that came upon the world, all of this power that is displayed in the glory of God was caused by nothing else except His voice. In the same way that He spoke and there was the creation. Let there be light and there was light. It was also His mere voice that brought about the destruction of the flood. And what we have in this psalm is a call for angels to worship the majesty of God and to remember the devastating consequences that will come even to them if they rebel. The angels, of course, we find all throughout Scripture are powerful creatures. They are more powerful than anything on earth. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, for example, says that they are greater in might and in power than men. And of course, in the context, he's, he's speaking specifically about the false teachers, but that, that language is important. What is he saying? The angels are greater in might and in power than men. In 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 35, we read there that it was a single angel 
who struck down the entire army of the Assyrians, some 185,000 men in a single night. The angels are also called the host of heaven because they are an army. They are capable of worldwide destruction. They are not winged babies. Contrary to popular images, angels are warriors. They are fierce. They are destructive. They do the Lord's bidding. And yet as great and as mighty as they are, it is ultimately the voice of the Lord alone that can summon them, direct them, judge them, and bind them however He pleases. And so they are called to worship the Lord here. And in that worship, David speaks of God's authority over them that was demonstrated most of the judgment of the flood Noah. Which leads us to a consideration of some of the points of the psalm. What are some of the implications that we find from this psalm? What is to be understood by the fact that even the host of heaven worship the Lord and that God has demonstrated His power and authority even over rebellious angels? I think there's probably at least three things that we can point to that are being points that are being made from this psalm. And the first of these is simply to declare God's sovereignty over every single power in heaven and on earth. We might say that this is an argument that is being made from the greater to the lesser. It is without a doubt that the hosts of heaven, the angelic hosts, are greater in strength, greater in power than men. Their glory is such that they can almost be confused with God Himself. As we even see what happens, for example, with the Apostle John in the book of Revelation when he is receiving a vision from an angel and the angel is so mighty in his glory that John falls on his face and begins to worship the angel and the angel has to rebuke him and say to him, I am a fellow servant. Worship God. They are elsewhere, as in Ephesians chapter 6, which refers specifically to evil heavenly creatures. They are elsewhere referred to as rulers and authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Satan himself, who is described as an angel of light, is referred to as the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. All of this language makes it very clear that the heavenly hosts are the greatest powers we know of. Far greater than the greatest empires the world has ever known. Again, they could destroy an entire empire in a single night. And yet, if God is sovereign over these mighty powers, and if with the simple uttering of a mere word and the sound of His voice, He can judge them in a moment, how much more sovereign is God over all the kingdoms of men? They are pawns. They are nothing in comparison to His might and His glory and His kingdom. 
Indeed, as the psalm says, it is the Lord who sits enthroned as King forever. Which leads us to the second and related point of the psalm, which is that the psalm is written also to declare God's victory over all evil and every evil power. Again, this psalm, as we saw earlier, is a victory psalm. It is sung as a response to God's victory over His enemies. And it's important to remember that when God saved His people from their enemies on various occasions, whether that be the salvation that the people of Israel experienced in Egypt at the Exodus, whether that be the judgment that came upon the Moabites, whether that be their victory over the Philistines, which led ultimately to the return of the ark. These various works of salvation by God not only exalt Him as the sovereign over the nations, but these acts of salvation were also performed against all of the gods the demons, the rebellious angels of the nations. In Exodus chapter 12, for example, when God said that He was going to strike down the firstborn of Egypt and that He was going to judge the nation, this judgment in particular was not just a judgment against Pharaoh. It wasn't just a judgment against the Egyptians and the Egyptian army but it was a judgment that fell also upon the gods of Egypt. The Lord says in Exodus chapter 12, verse 12, He says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. God's victories over the evils of men are also victories over the gods they worship and the gods they serve. And so when David is calling upon the heavenly beings to worship the Lord, it's not just a call to those heavenly beings who we might say are good heavenly beings. But it's even a call to the evil ones, to Satan, to bow the knee to the true King of kings and to the true God of gods. And in that very call to the heavenly beings to worship the Lord is implied a call to all earthly creatures, all men, all kings, all kingdoms, to likewise worship the only true sovereign, the one who has and who will secure victory over all his enemies. There is a warning here that in the same way, all of the wicked, both heavenly and earthly, were judged by a flood in the days of Noah, so also will there be a universal judgment to those who spread their works of evil in this age. Men may believe that their evil will continue on without any consequences at all. But the past actions of God portend always the future actions of God when the wickedness of men will be brought to a grinding halt by the voice of the Lord. You know, this past week we have seen some great evil being committed. You may have seen that the state of Ohio overwhelmingly voted in favor of a constitutional amendment that would allow a woman to abort her child at 
any stage of pregnancy so long as the treating physician, which is just a euphemism for the abortionist, determines that it's necessary to protect the woman's life or health. And keep in mind, you don't have an abortion if your life is at risk. That's not what you do. An abortion has the express purpose of killing the child. That's its only aim. If a mother has something like an ectopic pregnancy, which sadly does happen oftentimes, where the child is developing outside of the uterus, which can kill the mother. They don't go to an abortionist. You don't go to the Planned Parenthood down the road to have this taken care of. Their doctor has to perform a specific surgery called a keyhole surgery where they make a small incision in the abdomen area and they have to remove the child. And in that surgery, the unintended consequence is that usually, but not always, but usually the child dies. But what happens for the mother? She's grieved. She's devastated. She loves her child. That's totally different from an abortion where the sole aim is to execute the child. The key thing to note is that there is a vast difference between having unintended consequences and very intentional actions. Abortion has the express purpose of killing a child, and yet, keyhole surgeries often get lumped into a whole category of, quote, abortions that save the life of the mother. Keep in mind as well that an abortion that is for the purpose of protecting a woman's health can include anything. It can be her mental health. It can be her financial health. Whatever. It is a broad category that can include all kinds of things. But what struck me most of all about this recent amendment in Ohio is that the amendment itself did not use the euphemism fetus. It was very clear in its language on what was happening. Fetus was not used to refer to the baby. The amendment used the word child. Unborn child. And the voters of Ohio read that amendment. They read the words the proposed amendment would always allow an unborn child to be aborted at any stage of pregnancy regardless of viability. And they said, yes! I want that. That's a good law in my state. Women killing their children in what is supposed to be the safest place for a vulnerable, growing child in the womb. And not only was the vote a resounding yes, but after it passed, there was celebration. There was joy, hugging, singing, laughter, all in the name of the God of this age. Women's rights. In the ancient Near East, it was often the case that the names of gods would change 
based on whatever ruling nation came into power. The myths would stay pretty much the same, but the names of the gods would change. So for example, the Sumerian storm god's name was Ishkur, but the same storm god in Assyria's name was Adad, which was pretty much the same as the Canaanite god Baal, who also had another name you may be familiar with, Moloch. Same god, same demon, just different names. And you know, one of the things that the Israelites were repeatedly judged for was offering up their children as sacrifices to the god Moloch. Moloch is still around, friends. Moloch has not gone into hiding. He just has a new name. Women's rights. That's the new name that sounds much better to the ears of a secular age that believes it has progressed far beyond ancient paganism. But this is still the same paganism. It's the same God, the same beliefs, and it's the same blood crying out from the ground. In Noah's day, in Genesis 6, verse 11, it says that the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. Bloodshed. Human sacrifice in the names of their gods. And then what happened? As the land was polluted with blood, what happened? It was purged. It was cleansed. Judgment came in the form of a flood. And Jesus says in the Gospels, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And likewise, in 2 Peter 3, it says that by the same Word that destroyed the world in the flood, by this same Word are the heavens and earth that now exist stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. The flood points forward to the judgment that is to come upon the world. And when that day comes, all who are celebrating and all who are rejoicing and laughing and hugging over the sacrifices offered to Moloch will find themselves cast into a place where there is only weeping and gnashing of teeth because all of the blood of innocence will be meted out upon them. Evil in all of its forms, in the heavenly places and in the earthly places, will be brought to an end by the voice of the Lord. The God of righteousness will do that. And He will be exalted as the just God over all the earth when the bloodshed is brought to an end. Which leads me to this last point that I'll state briefly. Which is that this psalm also reminds God's people that He will save them through the very floods of judgment. In the same way that Noah and Lot were saved from judgments that fell on the wicked in their day, so also will God's people be saved from the wrath 
to come. The Lord will bless His people, the psalm says at the end. And that peace will come when the Lord reveals again the power of His Word which proceeds from His mouth like a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And the call for you and for me and for all who hear the word of the gospel while we are awaiting that return of Christ is to repent now. It's to trust in Christ now. It's to have the wrath of God against your sin poured out now on the person of His Son who dies in your place so that you, when He comes, can have life at that time. It is better to have your joy turned into weeping now as you weep over the reality and the weight of your sin instead of celebrating it. It is better to do that than to have your joy, your love for sin, your embrace for evil be turned into weeping then. When your weeping will remain an eternal weeping in judgment. Every single person who has shouted for joy in the celebration of child sacrifice. Let me make sure I'm, I'm heard loud and clear here. Every single person who has been seen by God Himself celebrating the evil that permeates this land can be forgiven, can receive grace and mercy and renewal and restoration. They can be changed in a moment by the power of the new birth which comes through the Gospel of Christ. There is no amount of sin that can not be washed away by the blood of Christ. But you have to come. You can't just wait until the end comes and then hope that the Lord will be merciful. Because the extension of the olive branch is now. There will be no olive branch then. His Word has already told us that. And the Lord is not a man that He should lie. He's not changing that. The time that we live in now as we await the full coming of the King is the time to hear the Gospel. To hear the King calling wretched sinners like you and like me to repent. Which is a grace, you see. To repent is a grace. It's a joy. You are saying in repentance, that the sin that has kept you enslaved and has left you in misery and in bondage, you don't want it anymore. You despise it. It's killing you. You want something better. You want Christ. Repentance involves and requires you to turn from the evil that is easily entangling you and that is so easily hidden to turn away from it and to come to Christ. And the promise of the Gospel is that when you do that, no matter what levels of evil you have committed, you'll be made new because the old man, the old you, will be dead. Crucified. Crucified with Christ. No longer to live again. And the new man, which will begin 
as the regenerating new birth, the work of the Spirit in the heart will be like a seed that grows and grows and grows and produces the fruit of holiness and righteousness in people who once were sworn enemies of the King. The King promises, friends, not only that He will forgive us, which is sufficient in itself, but He promises to in a very real way remake us, renew us, give us new affections, new desires, and even more than that, give us a glorious inheritance in a renewed land, a new heavens and a new earth where bloodshed will not exist anymore. He offers Himself fully and freely to you. And all you've got to do is take it. Is to take Him and receive Him. And you're washed completely and made new and made heirs of the kingdom to come. If you do this, if you do this, your old man will no longer have that stronghold on you. And you will become the first fruits of the new creation. Made new now by the Spirit. Pointing forward ultimately to the newness that will come in the resurrection. And so friends, take it. Take the grace. Take it every day. You know, when you come to Christ the first time, you don't, you don't just stop coming after that, right? Every single day you come back to Christ and you say, Lord, I'm a sinner. Forgive me of my sins. He washes you. He cleanses you. He makes you new so that you can walk in the newness of life. Let's go to the Lord and close with prayer. Father, You have revealed Yourself as sovereign over all. And You have revealed Yourself as a just God who has conquered evil and who will conquer all evil at Your appointed time. And Lord, it is most certainly the case that even we who know Christ were at one time counted among those who are called children of wrath. But in Your grace, and because of Christ, we are now called children of the living God. And I pray, Lord, for all who are here that the sin that clings so closely would be cast off from all and that we would cling to Christ and be made new through His grace, His kindness, His mercy and power with the ultimate hope of seeing Him face to face in the end. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.